Eurocentric design is guiding principles of what architecture is. Less yes. is more, more is more. As architecture students, that what's were were kind of taught, and so that's your framework when you start architecture. Yes. And you keep those blinders on throughout because you get into studios that are exactly the same way, led by the same people who were taught the same thing. Yes. And so, how do you break away from that and create something incredible that the the generation behind you isn't held by the same blinders? Frida Abu Bakar is a young architect with a surprisingly wide range of experiences. She's helped design everything from airports and major cultural centers to hospitals and university science labs. And she's done all this work from the U.S., Ghana, and now Toronto, where she's currently director of global practice at WXY. What unites much of her work, not only in terms of design but also in how she conceives of being an architect, is this idea of breaking away from convention and holding out a hand to the next generation. Both within and beyond the firms she's worked for, which include the Global Practices HOK, David Ajay Associates, and WXY, she's advocated for the value of diverse perspectives. This work led her in 2020 to co-found Beta, the Black Architects and Interior Designers Association, which specializes in mentorship and educational programs for young people interested in design. It is perhaps the variety of environments in which she was raised and the volunteer work she did when young that helped shape that focus. So, parents are Nigerian. Um, more interestingly, my dad was Nigerian Canadian. Came here in the '60s or '70s to do med school here in Toronto. He went back to Nigeria, got remarried. Um, we all knew that we were Canadian passports, but lives in the Middle East. So, born in Doha, lived in an American compound in Saudi Arabia. Grew up there. Went to a British school. <laughs> Mom was British. And then as we were kind of getting older, the Saudi Arabia system back then in the 90s was that basically grade 11 was the last grade that girls needed to be educated. So we had to move back to Canada because my sisters were in boarding school in England. Um, moved to Canada in 95, lived in New Brunswick. So started school there and then stayed there for about six years until... A lot of bouts of racism and issues in New Brunswick. So we moved to Thunder Bay, of all places, and started my high school there. Knew that I wanted to do architecture, so focused on sciences and math. My mom really wanted me, because she also was an artist, to like tap into that side of myself. So they really pushed me to keep going. Looked at courses at college to kind of learn about drawing and the setup. And then got into Carleton and decided to pursue architecture. I started that program and was there. And obviously, Carlson is very theoretical before they got this grant. <laughs> so it was really a lot of more drawing, a lot more kind of model building, which was really great because when I shifted into master's at Ryerson, it was purely technical, software, Revit, Rhino. And then from there, started as a receptionist at HOK because graduated in 2012 out of my master's, which was like at the helm of the recession kind of receiving. And a lot of people had just went back to grad school. So everyone I went to grad school with had lost their job. So they cut about 30 people that week that I started. But the seeds of opportunity can grow in such inauspicious moments. When I started, I was doing only Middle East work. And I was working with the planning team. So doing city master planning. I started with Dubai master plan with the Opera House. And, and that was my first architectural project. Mm-hmm. I was at reception designing elements for this like master plan. And like, can you help with the renderings? Can you help with this? So I, and in design. So I got to tap into all those tools. 
And then they also realized that I knew Revit and SketchUp. And so I was like building my portfolio, but also like, can you teach people SketchUp and can you do this model? And it was really funny because I'm like, why am I on reception? So it started like this whole conversation. Anytime a CEO came from the US, I was the first interaction. So I would tell them about myself and do that. So I did it a few times and eventually got taken off the desk (laughs) and moved to Calgary because we had won this Imperial Oil Campus that was five buildings. So I wrote my exams that year, but then oil and gas in Calgary was dropping. (laughs) We lost Imperial Oil projects, Shell projects, all the things that were like creating the foundation of what I thought was going to be my career path was gone and everybody was losing their jobs. We said like 300,000 people left Calgary at that time in 2015. And I was like, okay, so what office can I pick that has such a diversity of projects that this will never happen again? And Atlanta had science and technology. It had their Mercedes-Benz Stadium. It had the Porsche Design Center. It did academic work. And it had like eight universities that were working in Georgia State, Georgia Southern, Kennesaw. So they were super busy and super small. And I was like, okay. And then they had Susan Williams, who was basically the managing principal of D.C. at the time and then Atlanta. So I was like, this is an opportunity to have a great mentor. So I moved to that office and it was incredible. Mentorship became a through line of Frida's career and in her ideas of what a more equitable design industry looks like. Her work and her personal life took her back to Toronto, where she worked on a wide range of initiatives at HOK. Then... COVID happened. (laughs) And again, took a look at my portfolio and was like, what am I doing? (laughs) I wanted to do more design work. I was like, I want, I like uh, David Adjit's work. I like Francis Cray's work. And through beta, I was already kind of really focused on like, what do I identify with? And why are we not kind of doing the work that I feel is what design could be? And then that's when I really started thinking like, what is Canadian architecture? And is it more... Indigenous design, and I had kind of started that thinking in grad school because I did a, my thesis on Indigenous architecture and studying the sustainable principles from that. And although I did a lot of work in First Nations communities when I was in high school because I volunteered through um, the Multicultural Youth Centre in, in Thunder Bay, and his focus is solely Indigenous youth and how to uplift them. And so I thought, how can I look at that and translate it not only to Indigenous architecture, but like people that were before immigrants that came here, communities, especially Black Canadians, like Halifax and all these other areas that they've been here for 400 years. And how are they building Canada and what defines that? This line of thinking led to bigger questions about her own identity, and in trying to answer them in service of helping the Canadian architecture community, Frida ended up provoking the largest change her work life had seen to date. So when that thinking started happening, I was like, I really need to kind of look at my background as an African in diaspora. And so it was really like, okay, who is doing the work there right now? And how can I kind of help bring that thinking here? And so I reached out to the CEO of Ajay, Africa, which was Kofi Bio, and I said to him, you know, we're trying to pursue work here. There's not really a defined, like, Black Canadian architecture, but I see that you guys are trying to, they had a few RFPs I saw that had failed with a few firms. I was like, why are they matching with them? If we can find a way of using our technical skills and bringing in someone who's already a design vision, a design thought leader, then it would actually help us because we have working to our strengths and it shows that we understand where we're weaker and so I tried to sell it and I sold it so well that they were like why don't you just come work for us (laughs) (laughs) that was just around April or May of COVID like 2020 and at that point I was like well no I know I'm like reaching my eight years later okay I want to figure this out 
I think at that time we all thought it was just going to be the summer. <laughs> and then by the fall, the realization that this was not going to be just the summer, it was going to be like two years. I was like, okay. And the lockdowns in Canada were super stringent. And so I was like, okay, I need to make a decision. It took me four months, but by September when Ghana started opening up, they called me and they're like, are you still interested? And what do you want to do? And I was like, okay, let's do this. <laughs> I started as senior project architect in September And they kind of told me, you know, we need to work through these projects that are basically, what was it? It was um, museums first. Um, Imoa was the one in in Benin. And it essentially was in a city that my dad was born in. (laughs) And I mentioned this in passing and I was like, that's so interesting. Like, I didn't know that we were working on this. And I was like, and then slowly that project became mine. And it just like the story of it and the space and the city of which like, you know, all these items that were stolen from Nigeria were going to be returned back. It just was like, it felt really kismet and like really spoke to exactly that identifying who I was. And mm-hmm. and so I really sat in that. And then there were some other projects with healthcare, that a project that I never imagined would even be an Ajay project. So I never even mentioned my healthcare background because I didn't think it was applicable. And so building 111 hospitals across Ghana that would basically form their system for healthcare and then I thought, okay, this makes sense. <laughs> like all my tools and all my background are coming into application. And so come January, I got promoted to project director. So I started working on projects that were all based in West Africa. I think that those projects really gave me some clarity with myself as an African. And then what are we giving back to? You've described a kaleidoscopic set of experiences. I know that in our past conversations, you've discussed your story in terms of mismatches. I might infer from your description of everything you've done that part of the mismatch is that eclectic range of projects, but I'd rather hear it in your own words. What did it mean to you when you say your work life has been a series of mismatches? I think that traditionally architecture is three streams. It's always either the technical or the management or like the design. Any large firm will put you in those three brackets and make you focus. I have had (laughs) the time to like, try each one and see what I like about each thing and then marry them into one thing, which isn't the traditional path and probably irks a lot of people because it's like you're either a designer, but you can't be a project manager and you can't be into details. Like you just need to know what it is that you're focused on. And it's like, but each experience has held me different skills and like focusing on my weaknesses. So if I'm able to dance around those things, then I can kind of shift those into strengths slowly over the years because I'm able to dabble into them. But if I focus and kind of pigeonhole myself in one, then does that make me a good architect necessarily? That's the thing that always grinded me at HK was like, you need to specialize, you need to specialize, you need to write white papers on if it's science technology or is it healthcare, or is it aviation, like what is it that you want to do? You need to just like be a specialist leader in that. And it's like, but that never made me feel comfortable because it's like, I haven't explored enough to know that that's what I want to do. So I want to spend my first, like it's my 10th year now of like professional practice. Um, I want to spend that time really exploring everything and then deciding what elements like really stick with me and I feel that I can contribute better. And now I obviously know I'm more attuned to project management. I like projects being on budget and on time, but I also do like a really good design because I've been exposed to great design. So I know that those things are possible. And I feel as architects, we're often told that you can't have it all. You have to pick and choose. But then being exposed to more like Agile Associates where it's like, we need to make sure this is beautiful. And how can we do that? 
working with Sir David Ajay on projects and seeing his thinking and how he approaches things, it's completely out of that space. So taking those skills and applying it to my day-to-day now, when I look at a site, I want to respond to the site responsibly. How does it bring in natural light? How does it bring in the materiality of what already is there? And then also, how will the end user enjoy it? Will there be moments of play and joy and like and, and want them to be excited about the architecture? And that's what I think really is lacking right now in like right. a place like Toronto. I think things are expensive. I get it, and materials are expensive. A lot of the projects I found were like, you know, we have this budget and it has to stick to that. But I think there's a way of that simplicity of just trying to find joint architecture mm-hmm. again. That is just like, how do we do that within that budget? And how do we strive to make people more excited about it? And so maybe it's more about trying to find ways of being playful with architecture again, and then really looking to the history. To test the hypothesis of this season, can design accelerate positive change? Can architecture create better and more inspiring experiences for people while also advancing positive social and environmental change? Within the world of architecture, there's a system known as LEAD. It's often criticized within the architecture community for being too much about checking boxes rather than solving the actual problems it's meant to address. It's an evolving system and one that needs further development if it's going to be successful. We're beginning to hear more and more about healthy buildings. These are buildings that support better health for the people who use them, for the way they use natural resources, promote a positive economic impact, and create less environmental impact in how they are built. We're still in the early days. The path to a more sustainable future is complex and deeply dependent on progress across all areas of human activity. Solar energy may not be viable today as an easy alternative to fossil fuels, but it's more viable than it was 20 years ago. Things take time. The important thing is that we're making progress. We'll never get it all right at once, but millions of people, all pushing their own industry forward, will have a cumulative impact that will be far greater than the sum of the parts. Architecture has other factors to consider, too, as projects are developed. There are simply so many things that are going on when building new spaces, it can be difficult to understand the full complexity of the process. I think at Agi Associates, people don't understand the amount of research that goes into a site, and not only the site, but like a project, and where was it initially on that site, if it's a museum what helmed it to be a space of public space and what is public space in Africa? What does that look like? And then what are things that are working? So there's so much opportunity to do cool projects with materials that are responsible, Mm -hmm. less glass, less concrete. So how do we normalize those things? What I find powerful about what you're saying is this sort of seeing things from a perspective that maybe other people aren't seeing. And I think that often comes from you've had experiences when you are an outsider to that, to the culture that you're in. And I mean, interestingly, even when you went back to Ghana, you're still an outsider because you hadn't lived in Africa. And so I'm just curious about this idea of perspective and how you seize and see opportunity. Like sometimes even seeing the opportunity is difficult. What's your experience of sort of being able to see those opportunities that maybe other people can't? And then how do you get them to see those opportunities? I think a lot of people use excuses of like, you know, it's never been done before, but that's the whole point. You're supposed mm-hmm. to do things that never been done before. I'm always thinking that step ahead because I feel like if we only concentrate on the now, things don't work gel or excite me <laughs> in that way. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, if we can shift an entire way of thinking, not just in design, but also in the way we build and the way we do our detailing, what is the the step ahead? And even though it doesn't necessarily work now, if we create the framework where you're all thinking differently, then we can all shift that thinking. 
a big part of what you're talking about when you mention getting a whole group of people to shift their thinking is that it requires inspiration to bring people along. In 2020, right when you were about moving to Ghana to join Ajay Associates, you co-founded the Black Architects and Interior Designers Association here in Canada. Can you talk about that and about the inspiration involved in trying to shift the way people think? I think even early on in my career, because I felt like if everyone was doing things incorrectly, I had to inspire others to believe in what I was believing. Like very early on with my work with Beta, when we first all met. Everyone was like, it's just going to be a membership organization. We're just going to meet and have dinner. That's all we're doing. And I was like, but no, <laughs> hold on. Why are we meeting and what is the purpose? Like, what's our mission? Like, where are the students and why are they not working in our firm during the summer and how can we help them? So then they started mentorship and then they're like, okay, this actually works because I like doing portfolio reviews and I like helping them and, and getting through this. So they're like, okay, it started to hit a note with them. Like, I enjoy this. And I'm like, great. So we're doing mentorship now. And I'm like, okay, but we need to do outreach. So slowly people started to understand that we can enjoy just being architects, but if there's nothing coming in our place and the people that are actually interested aren't empowered and they're going through the same obstacles we went through 20 years ago, then we failed. <laughs> I do feel like it is all of our responsibility to make sure that the communities feel that they understand the built environment that they're in. And if we're not doing that, then what What are we doing? Right. <laughs> like every action, every connection has an interconnected web of other dependencies there's no such thing as changing one thing. If you want to change one thing, you kind of have to change many things. Exactly. Like, I think it'd be good just to take a second to say, just like, what is Beta? So Beta is a nonprofit organization that's run by interior designers and architects and architectural students that basically is meant to empower a group of youth that are pursuing architecture and design and then also create a space where professionals can grow and mentor younger generation to also lift themselves up within their firms. And that's really what we've become as a safe space for people pursuing architecture that are of Black Canadian background. So why did you start Beta? It started as a social group called I See You, which Camille Mitchell began in 2017 as just like a first dinner Let's get together, let's connect, talk about the qualms of working in a white space and in traditional firm models that wasn't working for everybody. And a lot of people were kind of having trouble with identifying A, what wasn't working within like, that framework and like what did that mean for them in terms of leadership roles and continuing to pursue architecture and just feeling really disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. Whenever a black architect like um, Nele came from, for OCAD for a talk, we would host them and, and let them see other black architects that are thriving in spaces that, you know, aren't really built for us, but like have found their way. So maybe that would kind of empower us. And that's when I slowly started realizing that network was the most important factor that was missing in architecture for us. It wasn't just that, you know, we're entering firms and we're not kind of being able to bring in work and we're not able to kind of be promoted. It was that, you know, we didn't have the network to bring that work in or to be promoted because we didn't know the right people. So how could we build that network with our own community and then find ways of uplifting each other through those channels. If we start speaking to leaders and connecting them with the students that are having trouble finding jobs there, that maybe there would be excitement around that. 
Initially, it was hard. <laughs> and obviously, 2020 changed a lot of things for us. We realized we had to be outward thinking so that people could see what the work we were doing and help us because it wasn't enough that we were only doing it for ourselves. And so we started aligning ourselves with Toronto School Board, and they have a Black Excellence Group now, and trying to find ways of helping with that high school demographic. And then universities like Daniels was incredibly helpful in giving us access to their students, which then formed Black Students in Design. So again, like a complete... It became an organism that was just like way larger than what we imagined. And when we started linking arms with those, we started to realize, okay, these are our strengths. These are our weaknesses and got connected obviously to Frontier and really trying to understand what our vision was. And when we realized, you know, it is just about the youth. And if it is really just about them, then how do we kind of build a space where they can thrive in the studios that we're in? We're going to continue to push for the sense of community that is outreach driven, that is linking arms with other organizations that are doing the work, because we feel like in that way we can shift our focus and strategy on just building up our community and giving them a network that they can tap into so they have resources that are way beyond us. And I think it also gives students something that we never had, right? We didn't have this amount of support. It'll change a lot of perspective on how people pursue architecture. So there is some shifting that's happening and trying to make people feel like there are other realms in architecture that haven't been explored that are super exciting. And there is work on the continent that's super exciting. And you should try to pursue education that gives you access to that and also professional opportunities that give you access to that. If you think about all the things that you are in the process of working on changing and all the different tools that you have had to use to try to encourage and foster change, what role do you think does inspiration has to play? Is it a big role, a small role? Is it one ingredient? Is it the central leading figure? Like you, you are in design, so. Yeah, it's the guiding principle for me. Because if it's not inspiring, why are we doing it? We want to make sure that everyone feels that they have a contributing um, factor in the way that a black high school student pursues architecture. It can be anyone. We don't need to only work with black firms. We work with, you know, Diamond Schmidt, KMB, MJMA, Raw Design. You know, they, they might not necessarily, like, we don't have black people on staff. So you don't need to have black people on staff. It's nothing to do with, with guiding someone's process. You can do a portfolio review. You can do um, mentorship. You can take on a mentee throughout the summer. You can bring them in for the year. It doesn't, this small little five minutes or 10 minutes, it doesn't need to be such a huge commitment like it's small little changes that will shift the way they think about themselves that build their confidence so I think that inspiration the way that we've done it is just creating a space where people can be curious and like ask questions and it's you know the safe space shouldn't just be for people of color should be for everyone so they feel that they can ask those indicators of how can I help without feeling like they're asking the wrong things. If you feel that you're shifting your thinking and diversity is now important to you, then let's help you do that. How can we help them rather than trying to hinder them do it because they feel like they don't know what they're doing? And so you just have to be welcoming and be gracious and make people feel comfortable. There's actually something quite powerful in the world of creativity design and where diversity can start to unleash some of the joy that you talk about is so important to architecture and design. So I feel like you argue that diversity itself can be an accelerator. And so how's that the case? Diversity of thought is not just in race, it's in age. And that age group from 25 to 30 is key, I think, right now to shift the way architecture is going. Because if we continue to let it be this secular thing from 
the associate to principal level, it won't change or grow or evolve. It'll constantly be the same thought because that age group all went through the same schooling, through the same mentors, through the same vision of boards that they were all shared. So now this younger generation is of the social media era of Pinterest and and Instagram, and they see a lot more and are exposed to a lot more and things that you won't see in your day-to-day, they see and they think of it as normal, but in your mind, it's something that you would never have seen. And so when you collaborate and collide those two things, it becomes something really beautiful because it's different generations of thought. There is this theme of joy that you keep almost wanting to remind of. And so I'd just like to hear more about why joy is important. Joy is important because I feel like architecture is such a serious profession and we don't take time to step away and find the playfulness in what design is sometimes. And I think um, the reason to guide inspiration for youth to pursue architecture, joy is like the best element. Imagine what LaGuardia was before, like you couldn't wait to get out of there. Like it's just watching people kind of laze around and spend time in, in areas that you would like rush out of is like, this is exactly what good architecture is because they're enjoying the design elements and the time and the effort that was spent to these little things that you think aren't worth it. But like people, it changes their demeanor when they enter a well-designed area. It makes people want to take in these elements and they might not necessarily understand them, but like we thought of their procession through that space and wanting them to linger and stay. When you put joy at the helm of what you're doing, you're not looking for an Instagram moment, you're looking for something that lingers a little bit longer. And then from there, you normalize good design and then everyone kind of benefits from it. Joy. Yes, we need to change how we do things if we're going to protect life on Earth. But we won't do it unless we accept that joy is an important part of the human experience. Maybe it's Frida's diverse set of experiences that has allowed her to understand the importance of joy as a necessary outcome of design. In any case, it's her dedication to celebrating diversity in all its forms that seems, for her, to be fundamental to creating more joy for more people everywhere. That's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Frida, check out Beta at beta.ca and WXYarchitects at wxystudio.com. You may have noticed we've been a bit slow releasing episodes lately. That's because, we're partly, we're rethinking what Frontier Media is all about. We're excited to share that Brian Scholas has joined us as media director, and we're working on a new version of Frontier Media called Frontier Magazine that'll be launching in early 2023. It'll be stories focused on people, projects, and ideas about how design and creativity speed up positive change. So keep an eye out for that. In the meantime, please subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date with new episodes as they are released, And leave us a review if you like what you hear. Thanks for listening. First Things First is hosted by me, Patty Harrington, and produced by Heather Goh. We're exploring the idea that change happens when people have better, more inspiring ways to change. Rather than telling people what not to do to address the big global challenges we're all up against, we should design more exciting products, services, and stories built on strong social and environmental foundations. Design can help us move faster to a more equitable world. First Things First is a Frontier podcast. Frontier is a purpose design office based in Toronto. We help organizations define, embody, express, and measure purpose and ambition. We also share stories where design is creating positive change. And we provide tools to those who constantly strive towards new and better places. To learn more, visit www.frontier.is.